today's podcast, we're looking at democracy's detectives. I tell the story of one reporter's journey through investigative reporting over more than 35 years. Dr. Hamilton is a professor at Stanford and the director of the journalism program there. I decided to write a book that would actually take several stories and show the net benefits to society in an economic sense. He holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University. And in his book, he proposes an economic framework of analysis that measures the return on investment of investigative reporting and ultimately its impact to democracy and society. It means you're not free riding. It means you're thinking hard about what it means to be a citizen. Stay tuned, because later on, we are going to learn how his book has influenced the academia, journalists, and policymakers. Think about a set of facts that I established in the book taken and used in policy debates. We begin by asking Dr. Hamilton what triggered him to start writing this book. I had been working as a consultant to the U.S. Federal Communication Commission on a project on the information needs of communities. And I was really struck by a set of people that I encountered who believed that there was not a market failure in journalism. They believed that public interest was defined by the public's interest and that if a story was important, it would get told and it would eventually reach them. Uh, I think that fundamentally missed that when you do investigative reporting, you can change lives and laws and the market doesn't fully uh, recognize that in terms of incentives that you have. It's hard for you to capture the benefits to society of your work. Why is it so challenging to assess the impact of investigative reporting? When you're entering an investigative piece, you don't know what you're going to find. There can be many different outcomes, but you you don't really know what's going to happen. So for instance, in the reporting career of Pat Stiff, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his work about writing about hog farm regulation in North Carolina, The story was published, but the hog farm industry was so politically powerful, it wasn't having great impact until 20 days of rain. And then once you had 20 days of rain, you had the uh, lagoon, lagoons burst, which were storing hog waste. That resulted in fish kills and pollution that made evident the impact of the industry. And that resulted in real change in public policy. So Pat Stiff used to say, You need reporting plus rain in order to get change in North Carolina. So I decided to write a book that in part would use the framework of cost-benefit analysis that would actually take several stories and show the net benefits to society in an economic sense. And I also wanted to do it in a human sense. So in another chapter in the book, I tell the story of one reporter's journey through investigative reporting over more than 35 years, and that is Pat Stiff. So it was a combination. It was, economists call it a mixed methods or hybrid approach, partly quantitative, partly qualitative. 
So do you believe that the audience really craves for more investigative journalism that they can trust? Everybody has four information demands in their life as a consumer. I'm looking for products and prices. As a worker, I need information that helps me do my day job. As an audience member, you probably have Netflix. And then as a voter. And most people remain rationally ignorant about the details of politics. Uh, when you think about the cost of becoming informed, the time, it doesn't make sense to learn about politics. Now, I think some people feel they have a duty to become informed. Uh, some people think that the details of policy are inherently interesting. And maybe I can't talk to people about policies, but I can talk to them about politics as a horse race, who's ahead, who's behind. It's basically bringing the entertainment uh, demand back into the equation. We're more often motivated by entertainment or engagement rather than getting information that is reality-based. So that can be a problem. Could that be the reason uh, that private media outlets do not have the incentive to invest in investigative articles? Essentially, there are five incentives that lead to the creation of information. Subscription, that's pay me. Advertising, I want to sell your attention. Nonprofit, I'd like to change how you think about the world. Partisan, I want your vote. And self-expression, I just like to talk. And that's social media. And what we're seeing is a shift away from advertising in terms of the creation of media content, because advertisers can, in many ways, find people more easily and more cheaply on Google and Facebook than through media companies. So in terms of creation of information, we're seeing a shift away from advertising towards subscription and towards nonprofit. Uh, what we see here in the Netherlands uh, is a lot of journalists who earn their reputation uh, from working in, in big media outlets. Now they are going solo. Um, what you're describing is really interesting with the migration. Um, you're right that when people migrate in the U.S., some journalists are leaving their home outlet and going to Substack. So they're creating their own newsletter and, and monetizing that. Um, the human capital they have, the knowledge was built up in a market system uh, where they had editors, where they had lawyers who helped them get the information. Those people do have a reputation at risk. And I think that that's, that can in part be a signal of trust. You know, if, if somebody has a lot to lose by being wrong, then that is a way that to, um, to think about whether you would trust them. Let's stay a bit on this concept of trust. Which are the indicators of trustworthiness online? On the supply side, first of all, if a lot of what you're getting is mere self-expression, that is suspect. I think that uh, transparency about funding, knowing whose money created the information you're looking at, knowing who created it as a person, what their track record is, how long they've been in it, um, those things, where's the money coming from and how long has the person been covering something, Those can be signals. And then finally, I think it's always important to remember, say, when you're looking at something on a social media platform, the social media platforms themselves don't say they're in the truth business. So Facebook is the in engagement business. They're trying to uh, keep you on the site and sell your attention to advertising. 
YouTube is in the engagement business. They're trying to keep recommending things that keep you on the site that they can sell to advertisers. And uh, even to some extent, when you do Google search, they're trying to help you answer the question that you may have in your mind to find the answer you were looking for, which may not be uh, the truth. So the market for truth, um, again, it goes back to that demand problem. Are you looking for best description of reality that allows you to navigate the world? Or are you looking for something that is in part engaging and entertaining? While reading your book, I came across the concept of design thinking in journalism. What this design thinking means in investigative journalism um, and, and how, how it's explained in, in democracy detectives? Sure. So design thinking often be associated with uh, Stanford, the D school here. Oh. Uh, it's very prevalent, um, obviously in Europe too. Um, and I think there are formal definitions of it, but to me, it comes down to user empathy, trying to think about uh, the context of how somebody encounters your information and what they're going to do with it. Um, Hal Varian, who has written a great book called Information Rules with Carl Shapiro, um, uh, talks about um, the context of consuming news. And he used to say, is it bored at work? Do you, is somebody consuming you know, for 90 seconds? And then uh, that might affect how you structure your story or what you do. Um, and I think That's what design thinking helps you understand. How, how did somebody come across this information in the wild? How did they process it? And then what do you think they'll do with it? That's important if you're thinking about subscriptions, if you're thinking about sustaining a business model. Another way to think of this too is, which is what Chalkbeat or ProPublica, um, those are two nonprofits in the US, um, They have a, a design thinking approach, which is how do I want an institution to change? What do I want to happen? And sometimes in the U.S., you go back 20 years, people were competing for Pulitzer Prizes on impact, but they weren't explicitly saying this story is here to change policy because that might be seen as advocacy. Fast forward to today, what ProPublica says is we're going to determine what stories we do based on whether we think our stories can make a difference. And what they say explicitly is we're not partisan in the sense of if we see a problem and we believe that new information will help solve that problem, uh, we're going to keep on that story till we see change. And again, that's a difference from the market because in the market, You get a lot of attention for discovering a problem, but relentlessly keeping a uh, focus on it may not be uh, the best use in a market of your resources. But what ProPublica said is we're going to write where we can make a difference. We're going to keep on writing until we get change. We have an open mind in the sense of we think there's a problem, but we may not have a solution. That's something that should come from our reporting or as we investigate more. But I think 
when you break down design thinking, part of it is user empathy, thinking about how the information is sought and consumed. And then part of it is uh, an institutional analysis of within the way that, as you pointed, talked about earlier, civil society and government and companies operate. How could what I do make a difference in the story that I tell? Towards the end of the book, you make a case in favor of computational journalism. Can you provide maybe a sort of conceptualization for our audience? Sure. It's a very clunky term. I think of it, it's like data science. It's, a, it's going to eventually mean a set of tools that reporters and journalists use. Some people think of it as replying, uh, applying computation to the full range of a story's life. So discovery, telling, distribution, monetization, archiving. I think an easier way to think about it for me is Computational journalism is stories by, through, and about algorithms. So stories by algorithm you see in the United States now and in other countries, um, sports stories or finance stories. Those are things that can be written by software now. You have things like quarterly earnings reports that come out of companies. Uh, once you have the data on their earnings, it's pretty easy to fill in almost like a cookie cutter, fill in the article. And that's what the Associated Press does. They have software that allows them to now, they now write about more than 3,000 companies when their earnings come out. When a journalist had to do it by hand, they wrote about 300. So it expands the set of companies, especially smaller companies. Um, but that's a story by algorithm. Stories through algorithms, I think, are extremely interesting. That's discovering the story by using uh, better data and software. And in the United States, an example of that would be uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was a Pulitzer finalist. They were trying to answer the question, how often does it happen that a doctor engages in sexual harassment and abuse and keeps practicing? So they scraped all of the medical society sites in the United States and they had over 100,000 cases of uh, doctors being disciplined or investigated. Then they used uh, a machine learning model to figure out what words are associated with sexual harassment or abuse in a disciplinary case. And they dropped that number of cases from 100,000 to about 6,000. And the reporting team was able to read then the 6,000 and develop a national story about uh, how some doctors were able to continue practicing even though they'd engaged in sexual harassment or abuse. So that's using the data and the software to find the story. And then finally, there's stories about algorithms and probably uh, ProPublica, a national nonprofit in the United States, had a series that they called Machine Bias. And they wanted to look at the Facebook advertising algorithm Facebook is famously, like most tech companies, very difficult to write about. Everybody signs a non-disclosure agreement when they go out to lunch. I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult type of place to report about. So what ProPublica did was they basically acted like somebody taking out an ad and they went to the site and they said, here's a housing related ad, um, please don't show it to black people. Now, they didn't say that in words. What they did is they used drop-down menus and you can include or exclude people based on their demographics. And that would be illegal in the United States for a newspaper. A newspaper in the United States can't say, here's a house, 
if you're African-American, don't apply. But in effect, that was the impact of the Facebook algorithm. When that story was uh, published, Facebook said, obviously, that's not our intent. We're going to try to reform. ProPublica went back after several months. They were still able to exclude people based on the algorithm from ads relating to, say, jobs or housing. And in the United States, there are at least three different transactions where uh, you cannot take into account uh, race or sometimes age, uh, jobs, housing, and credit. And eventually this led to lawsuits and eventually Facebook settled and created a separate portal where when you are trying to place an ad related to credit or housing or um, jobs, you there are a set of things you can no longer target people on. And what I think is really interesting there is you have reporters who are essentially facing a very opaque organization and determining with the tools that they have, how can they tell you how the institution operates? So that's a long answer of saying computational journalism, it's evolving, it's a toolkit. And I like to think of it as stories told by algorithms or discovered through algorithms or stories about the algorithms themselves. Do you believe that people understand that concept? In 2008, I put in a government grant to study computational journalism, and I wanted to see what the reaction would be. One set of reviewers of that grant said, this is too hard. We're never going to be able to do public interest data mining. The things that you envision are too hard. And the other set of people said, this is trivial. We've solved all of these challenges in the war on terror. We are all, we are able today to take those conversations and take transcripts and connect organizations and names extremely easily. And what I thought was ironic about that was computational journalism. If journalists have tools, they can monitor how government operates. I fully understand that government has tremendous software to monitor how people operate within their borders. But I think reporters need the ability to study those institutions. It's a question of who will watch the watchers. Uh, the book uh, was published in 2016. If you were to uh, make a, a new edition, what would you add? I talked a little bit about why I wrote the book, that I wanted to show that there are market failures in journalism and that when you tell a story, uh, It can have individual impacts, people get fired, people get hired, deliberative impacts. Um, I think and two other things that I'd hoped to do with the book was attract more computer scientists to this field. And that's why I had to focus on computational journalism at the end of the book. I mean, the book is hopeful in the sense that it says, um, even in a world of market failure, or even in a world of reduced advertising resources. Here are two things that computers can help you do. One, lower the cost of discovering stories through better use of data and algorithms. So if you say to yourself, maybe our local community can support five journalists, a newsroom with five reporters, computational journalism might be able to multiply or magnify what those five reporters can do. And then on the demand side, how can you tell stories in more personalized or engaging ways? Um, because once you're on the internet, you're in a world of competition. And if you have commodity facts, if you have things that other people can get on the internet pretty easily, 
you're not going to be able to charge and people aren't going to go to your site. So product differentiation through storytelling, um, that's also something that computation can help you with. What I would have changed or what I would do now, I think that I would put even more emphasis on trying to get the government to give reporters better tools. And I would have linked that also to the crisis with uh, local news. We really need to figure out how local news will be funded. But if you are gonna have a journalist, she needs a set of tools. So as we're running that market race about how many reporters can be sustained in a given radius of a community, we need to think about giving them the tools to really hold institutions accountable. What would you say to those uh, technology dystopians who um, are afraid of um, artificial intelligence completely taking over human uh, agency and human work and producing articles from top to bottom? What if that becomes sophisticated to the extent that we don't need humans anymore? I think of AI like I think about English. It can be used for good or ill. And if you are trying to do good and absolve and, and say, I'm not going to uh, use this, then uh, that's one of those classic cases of people of goodwill standing back and letting evil triumph. So I think uh, you there's a, a good example of this. There's a computational journalist at ProPublica. One of the things he was able to do was um, In the United States, in the rulemaking process at our regulatory agencies, people can submit comments. And what he found was pretty sophisticated evidence of fake comment writing in support of a particular industry position. And it wasn't just people saying the same thing. They weren't just cutting and pasting. They were actually using sophisticated algorithms where they would pull names from the internet of real people who had never been involved in this discussion, they would alter the terms of debate enough so that if you just were looking and trying to screen for repetition, you wouldn't spot it. And that generated a, uh, an inaccurate assessment of how people involved in the rulemaking process felt about something. But, you know, if you hadn't had that person on the other side, that person who eventually got a job as a computational journalist, you wouldn't have been able to detect that. And so I really do think of it, unfortunately, as an arms race, especially with, um, say, uh, video, where you can have a video of President Obama say whatever you want to. But I think that I wouldn't want to see necessarily government trying to intervene, uh, preventing certain types of software. I'd much rather see same people who fund good journalism fund good software for the journalist, realizing that it, it will always be an arms race. Where do you see that the book had the most impact? I was really fortunate. The book won three best media research books of the year awards when it came out. And I think that helped scholars find the work. In terms of policymakers, um, It's interesting, recently the U.S. government, the Senate and the House have started to consider legislation to help local news. And in 
The Senate two weeks ago had a report on local news where they talked about Pat Stiff and they referenced my book and they said, what's missing with local news? Here you had a reporter whose work generated 31 laws in North Carolina. So it was a Senate report referring to Pat Stiff's work as an example of what's missing with local news. And then in another, in an actual Senate bill that was is currently being considered to create a local news commission, there's uh, a fact that I believe came out of my work, which said that what I had done was look at the use of Freedom of Information Act by journalists and found that it had gone down among journalists, but it had gone down by more than half among local journalists. And so when I think about a set of facts that I established in the book, uh, um, those facts have then been taken and used in policy debates. Um, and then another thing that I'm happy about is that several nonprofits, uh, journalism outlets, have given the book to their funders. And actually, Stanford, the president of Stanford, sent a copy of the book to major donors. And I know, uh, at least in one case, that there was a philanthropist who funded experiments in local news in part because of the cost-benefit analysis done in the book. So stepping back, my hope would be that it would draw students in and that it would draw funders in. There's a class taught at Stanford called Exploring Computational Journalism that it's project-based, it brings computer science students together with journalism students. And that's the type of thing that I hope the book, uh, the book will do. On that note, I believe we can, we are reaching the end of our discussion. Um, is there anything else you would like to add for uh, our audience here in the Netherlands? Something that you would like to say that I didn't ask or cover? Yeah, first I'd like to thank you for the invitation. And it's when you write the book, you never know who your reader is going to be and, and how they will engage with the work. So I really appreciate the you've read it and if you're listening to this uh, I want to thank you too because it means you're not free riding it means you're thinking hard about what it means to be a citizen and if you're a journalist it may mean that you're thinking what story currently goes untold today that I could work on and if either of those things happen uh, the book will have had the impact that I hope for so thank you very much thank you this was Dr. Jay Hamilton, Stanford's university professor and director of the journalism program there. And I'm Elena Geller for Find Out Why.